to the podcast from the Sunday night service at New Life Church. The Sunday night service reflects a desire to be rooted in the historic expressions of faith while engaging God with our whole being in the world today. For more information on New Life Church, you can visit our website at newlifechurch.org. All right, well, here we are in our Luke series. We're in Luke 16 tonight. And uh, just before we begin, uh, a friend of mine, Bob, who's here tonight, brought me this jersey back from England. And uh, it was a special thing of joy today because my childhood team was Manchester United. And if you follow the you know, European soccer at all, uh, you'll know that they're sort of like the Lakers or the Knicks. You know, they're kind of the perennially good team. So even back in the 80s and 90s when I sort of kept up with them, and then now to know that they're still, you know, contending. So it's pretty cool. So thanks for the wonderful gift, and, I, and forgive the dressing down. I was just very excited to wear this tonight. Um, plus, as it turns out, we don't have much of a football team here in Denver, and so it's just better to maybe switch gears a little bit. But um, I, I also thought it was a bit ironic because I'm teaching out of Luke 16, where Jesus says that no one can serve God or worldly wealth. And so the things of this world that we cling to uh, often challenges things. So I thought, I'll wear this tonight because this is symbolic for me for things that I really care about. Um, you know, mention the word money and you've got everybody's attention, like I do now. Uh, but you, oftentimes you not only have their attention, you have uh, with it the strength of their emotions or convictions or opinions about the subject. Uh, for example, it is the thing that's dominating all the political discussion around now. And, and, and we're, gonna, we're entering this season where maybe ad nauseum we're going to be hearing rhetoric and speeches and solutions and all of this stuff, but it's the, on the forefront of everybody's mind. What do we do to fix the economy? What do we do to fix this? And so we've got different theories. Okay, well, you need to, to, to spend less. Well, actually, no, we need to make more. And in, in some ways, you know, there's a lot of emotion around that discussion on a macro-national level, and yet isn't that very similar to the same discussion we're having in our homes. Well, do we need to sort of cut our expenses and, and maybe spend less? Well, maybe we need to find ways to make more, and maybe it's a bit of both. And so when we, when we talk about money, there's a lot of uh, not only opinions and convictions, but there's emotions attached to it because it touches on several nerves. And many times we come to church and we say, well, just tell me, what does the Bible say about money? And if only the Bible were coded like the Encyclopedia Britannica, where you can kind of say, okay, M.M. money. Here's the stuff about money. And, and maybe some of you are, are, are um, uh, used to that sort of an approach to Bible study. Okay, I'm going to look up my Strong's Concordance. Okay, money, all the verses about money. And then re- That's not necessarily a bad approach, but that can be a misleading approach. Because the Bible is made up of a diverse a variety of books written by different people in different times, in different settings, and there's different genres to it. Proverbs, for example, if you were to read what Proverbs says about wealth and money, you would walk away generally with the conclusion that God's blessing is indicated by wealth and prosperity. And so you might memorize a few Proverbs. You might be into the proverb of the day, keeps the devil away. And and again, look, I'm all for any kind of Bible reading, so it's good. But, but if you only read that, you might think that's how the Bible works. And so you've got this verse in Proverbs that says, look, uh, a generous man will, will prosper. And so, okay, look, look, this is what I'm going to do, and this is how I'm going to live. And, and then you sort of think that you've struck a deal with God, 
And then what happens when it doesn't turn out? You say, well, God, hey, what's up? I thought you said, and this is a law, and this is a principle. And, and we somehow start reading Proverbs like you would read, say, the Ten Commandments. But they're very different books. A Proverbs, uh, I could take this huge rabbit trail, but 620, 620, 620. Stay, stay on track. Not going to do it. But as you keep reading in the Old Testament, you'll see other things about wealth and about riches that are being said. You, you'll, you, you'll hear the prophet Jeremiah say, Don't let, let not the rich man boast in his riches. You'll, or you'll hear Amos rebuking the wealthy for gaining their wealth by oppressing the poor. And he says, look, you fat cows of Samaria reclining on your luxurious cushions, but your feet are on the necks of the poor. Yikes. I mean, these are some strong words. And then you get to the Gospels, and here's Jesus saying, look, if you want to follow me, you better sell all your possessions and give it to the poor. Whoa. Where's that altar call? Just as I am without one plea, you know, and literally not a penny, I'm selling it all, you know. How come nobody gives altar calls? Like, and it's problematic if you're looking for the Bible to be my answer book, my answer manual. Isn't the Bible a rule book, Glenn? Well, actually, it's not. It's the story of God's redemptive work from beginning to end. It's the story of God at work within his world to rescue it, to redeem it. And so we read different books of the Bible differently. I, I've done a talk um, a couple times, I think, one at Sunday school and one on a Sunday night about different ways to sort of think through the Bible. So I won't, again, I'll resist this detour to do that tonight. But we come upon this passage here in Luke 16 where Jesus is talking about wealth. And it's interesting because what we want to say is take one passage and say, okay, this is it. And the truth is we've got to take all the richness of, that we get in the Scripture and hold it in tension. And to say, where are we in this journey? As the story of God's redemption is unfolding, how do we change as we think about the role of stuff and the role of money? And how, how does our lives change about it? And maybe the thing that's most significant about this is that Jesus doesn't allow us to compartmentalize our lives. And to sort of say, well, I got my faith and I say the creed and I take the bread and the cup and then I can just, you know, look, I got my paycheck, I got my job and this is just the way the world works and this is how I'm going to spend my money. And Jesus says, no, 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 listen. What it means to follow Jesus is that everything about your life needs to conform to something totally new, someone. And we're going to see this as we explore this. Luke 16, however, opens uh, with a parable that is very uh, puzzling, very enigmatic, very, um, uh, in some ways, uh, controversial. Um, if the prodigal son is the most discussed, most talked about parable, the parable of the dishonest manager may be the most avoided parable. Because everybody, nobody's really sure, like, what do we do with this? Here's, is this a guy being dishonest, and how, how do we, how do we um, get around this? So how we're going to get around this, we're going to start with verse 10. And um, again, I don't choose the text each week, folks. I have a living lectionary that chooses it for us. Uh, but to be fair, we are going to come back to this parable and, and, and see if we can't get a sense of it. But let's, let's start here with verse 10. Whoever is faithful with little is also faithful with much. And the one who is dishonest with little is also dishonest with much. If you haven't been faithful with worldly wealth, who will trust you with true riches? 
If you haven't been faithful with someone else's property, who will give you your own? No household servant can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you will be loyal to the one and have contempt for the other. You cannot serve God and wealth. The Pharisees, who were money lovers, heard all this and sneered at Jesus, and he said to them, You are the ones who justify yourselves before other people, but God knows your hearts. Here's the stinger. What is highly valued by people is deeply offensive to God. The actual uh, the sense of the Greek in that phrase is it's an abomination to God. Now, those are strong words. The thing you value is the very thing that's an abomination to God. What are we to do with this? What are we to do with these, these verses that Jesus uh, is saying? I think, first of all, the first thing we see that's very clear is that Jesus is saying you cannot serve both God and worldly wealth. Now, it's interesting because we can't serve God and worldly wealth. And it, when you think about this, he's, he uses the illustration here of the servant, and, and a servant can't have two masters. One of the commentaries I was reading this week said, look, it's not necessarily true across the board that you can't serve two masters because it, was, it would not have been out of the question for a servant in the first century to have had two masters. So maybe the point is not this generic thing of that you can't serve two masters as much as he's saying you cannot serve these two masters. Specifically, God and worldly wealth run in opposite directions. Now, that's interesting to really begin to think about. What does money represent? First of all, for the Pharisees in Jesus' day, it's very likely, it's very possible uh, that they were in a position of comfort and wealth because they'd cozied up to the rulers. They'd found a way to kind of uh, uh, get close to um, the, the, Roman, the Roman rule and to say, look, hey, we're for you. We're, we're, we're with you. We're, in you. we're together. Let's work together on these things. And so they became the beneficiaries of, of Rome. And in some ways, Jesus is saying, look, you care so much about this that you've sacrificed justice for the sake of your place of comfort, for the sake of your place of status, for the sake of your own um, position of comfort. It's possible that Jesus is rebuking them and saying, look, in your case, what you've done with money is you've made it the very thing that you've worshipped and you've focused on, that, that it's become, you've become, the way you're treating this, it's become an abomination to God. Now, these are strong, strong words. Again, you've heard me refer time and time again to the Maccabean Revolt about 150 years prior to Christ. And one of the reasons I keep doing that is it was a very significant moment in the Jewish story, in Israel's history. This moment where the Assyrians come in, Antiochus Epiphanes comes in and makes them sacrifice this pig and all of this stuff. And there's this, that's called the great abomination. You have to wonder if when Jesus says this phrase, look, what's valuable to you is actually an abomination to God. You have to wonder if in the back of their minds they're thinking, well, are you... Are you saying that this is as bad as that? No way. How could that be? How could you be? We're the Pharisees. We love the law. We teach people to obey. We're the ones who preserved the, 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 the teachings. In Oria. How is it that you can say that we love money so much that the thing that we value is actually an abomination to God? How can this be? And maybe it's because of, of what they had sacrificed along the way to get there. 
But certainly what we have to wrestle with and deal with is that God and money run in opposite directions, pull us in opposite directions. It would be much easier if we could uh, talk and think as if the ends justify the means, you know, and to say, well, look, you know, I'm kind of doing this deal this week, and we got this contract coming up, and this client, and we're hoping that things will work out, but, you know, I'm really not sure, and in order to make it happen, we got to, you know, we got to kind of do this, and we got to kind of do that, and, you know, I mean, I'm not sure how ethical that is, and how, you know, whatever, but hey, look, if we, if we get this, it's going to be a major score for our company. You can be sure we're going to give that money to the poor. And so there's these ways that we justify it, and we say, well, maybe, maybe as long as I'm using it well, then it doesn't matter how I've gained it, right? I mean, is it okay? Or Do we find ourselves in situations every day where the value system of money is pulling us in a different direction, where we find ourselves saying, look, there's this whole paradigm, this whole world, this whole philosophy that says, here, you need more of this. And maybe it's not the money itself, but the things that money affords, the comfort, the luxury. Maybe sometimes it's not from a place of having plenty, but from a place of, ha- of not having anything and saying, you know, if only, if only. And there are different ways where we recognize, gosh, I'm a slave to this thing because I got to have that. And I'm not discounting the realities of life. We need money to have a roof overhead and food and all this. I, I, I know, I get it. But at what point does it become this master where there's a whole system that we're buying into? Think of it uh, even when it comes to our, our evaluations of economic theory or solutions for the country's economy and things like that. Oh, look, there's, there's fortunately not a... Um, or maybe unfortunately, there's not a verse in the Bible that says, look, if a country would do this and this is the solution, oh, here, here's God's answer to fix the economy. Eh, not quite. And I think, I think it'd be difficult, you'd be hard-pressed to take the words of Jesus and, and force it into one economic theory, capitalism, or this, or that, or socialism. You know? I think you'd be hard-pressed to, to fully fit it into any of these categories or compartments. But I also think it's worth asking yourself, do I support this theory or this view or this party or this whatever out of my allegiance for money or my allegiance to God? Is that worth asking? That's uncomfortable though, isn't it? Because I don't want to think like that. I don't want to think that the reason I may favor this view or that theory is really at the core of it because I value the system of stuff. And the money that gets me more. And the more that gets me more. Maybe there's something that needs to be challenged by that. One of the most dangerous lies we've told people in church is that all you need to do is to put God first. You've heard this, right? Well, just put God first. I heard this all the time growing up in a a Christian home and going to youth group. And and my youth pastors would say this and people in church would say this. Just put God first. And when I got a little bit older in high school, I, I began to realize that this was a very misleading and frustrating phrase. Because what does it mean to put God first? Does it mean that he's got to be the first thing I acknowledge when I wake up in the morning? Maybe. Well, what if I have to go to the bathroom first? 
Does it mean I have to spend the most amount of time with him? I heard youth pastors sort of suggest that. How much time do you spend praying versus how much time do you spend playing sports? You know? And I sort of, you know, I wasn't like the biggest sports dude, so that was okay with me, you know? But, but I began to think, well, but, but what? But, you know, I spend eight hours sleeping. Is that my God? And so this whole thing of putting God first becomes very problematic because what, what does this really mean? How, what are you saying when you say put God first? I would suggest to you that the more biblical phrase is actually not that we put God first. Did you know that? That God wants, does not want to be first. He wants to be only. <laughs> he wants to be singular. The closest verse that comes to our thinking of, well, put God first, is the verse in Exodus where he says, you shall have no other gods before me. But is the implication that you can have them after me? (laughs) Of course not. And any time Israel would say, yes, Yahweh, but also Baal, prophets would say, "Uh uh-uh. Nowhere are we told to put God first. What we are commanded to do is to love him only. To love the Lord our God with all of our heart and soul and mind and strength. Here, O Israel, the Lord your God is one. He's the one consuming passion. There's no order of priorities. And I think this is why we have difficulty connecting devotion to God with the necessities or realities of money because we sort of think, well, as long as I put God first, so maybe putting God first with my money is tithing. Well, that's certainly part of it. But another way to think of it is that It's not about putting God first. It's about making him the center that shapes everything else around it, that rearranges everything else around it. It's like our love for God becomes the red shirt in a load of white laundry. It's not first. It bleeds on everything. And every white shirt you take out is a little bit red. That's what this is meant to do. See, money, of course, is a public commodity. And I think there's something interesting about Jesus talking about money because he's saying faith is not a private matter. Your faith in Christ is not personal and private. It affects the public. Money is a public commodity. And so every time you use it, you show whether you're worshiping it or God. The second thing that's sort of clear in this phrase or in, this, in, this, in the verses that we've read is that we can learn faithfulness in our use of worldly wealth. Jesus says, look, if you can be faithful with this, you'll be, you'll be given true riches, something truer, something more eternal, something more lasting. It's hard to say for sure what... Um, I think there could be several resonances to this. But here's where the parable of the unjust man or the dishonest manager comes to play. This story, if you've read it before in the early part of Luke 16, is about a guy who's been put in charge of his master's resources. And he's misused them. He's squandered them. Not unlike the prodigal son who's squandered his father's riches, right? So on the heels of the story of the prodigal son, we've got another story of a guy who's just wasted his master's resources. 
A rich man heard that his household manager was wasting his estate, and he calls the manager in and says, you don't have your job anymore. You, you cannot be my manager anymore. And what this guy does is he then goes to all the people that owe his master money, and he says, okay, look, pull out your bill. What was it? 800? Scratch that. Let's make it 600. 1,000? Let's make it 800. And he starts changing the bill. Now, there's a couple ways to think about this. What is, what is he doing? How does he get off doing this? One of the commentaries suggests maybe he's writing off his own commission. And he's sort of saying, look, I don't need to make money for this. I just need to kind of get in your good graces. And so he does that. Maybe it's that. Maybe this was a, the, the, the interest that was charged, added on to the actual commodity. These were, again, commodities that we're dealing with, wheat and barley and oil and all this stuff. The Jews weren't allowed to charge interest on money loans, but maybe these were loopholes. Like, okay, well, how about on the barley, you know? How about on the wheat? And so this guy is going back and he's thinking, man, I've made a mess of things, but maybe I can kind of try to straighten it out just a little bit. And so, so here, let's write that down. I'll, we'll take away the interest or we'll take away the commission, whichever it is. Now, at least two things happen as a result of his actions that Jesus highlights. One, uh, sorry, this first one is not highlighted. It's maybe implicit. One is this guy makes his master look generous, doesn't he? Because he's going to the person who's saying, look, you owe a 1000 let's call it 800 If you're the person that owed the money, what are you going to think about the master? Wow, pretty cool. The item was on sale. <laughs> you know, I owe less than I thought. That's great. Good day. Well, that master's pretty generous. He makes his master appear generous. But secondly, Jesus says, look, he's... He's um, spends his money in a way that these people are going to welcome him into eternal dwellings. Now, this is a confusing verse. What, what does this mean? Eternal dwellings? Is this salvation? Is this heaven? You know what? You've heard me say this a number of times. That scrap your thinking about earth and heaven. It's all about how we get from here to there. And, and scrap that for a moment. Because in the first century, that's not what they're thinking. They're thinking, how does what we do here in this age connect with what happens in the age to come? How are we going to live in a better way in the age to come? And Jesus is saying, you know what? You can do things with money here that echo into the age to come. You can do things with resources here that in a way, these people are going to be grateful for it and they'll welcome you in to their dwelling places. I don't know for sure, but it seems to me that one of the points of this parable is there is a way, part of learning faithfulness with money is to use it in a way that echoes into the age to come. Let's say this more clearly. How can we be faithful to God with our money? One, use money in a way that reflects God's generosity. Maybe part of what Jesus is saying, because right after this parable, he says, look, if you can be faithful with little, you'll be trusted with true riches. Maybe there's something in here. Maybe this is a stretch. But maybe there's something in here that says, look, if we can handle our dealings with money in such a way that it shows the master's generosity. Now think about that for a minute. Think about the little that you have. Is there a way to have $10 reflect the father's generosity? Is that a way maybe that we can be faithful with money? To have it speak of a generous God. Secondly, 
Use your money in a way that resonates in the age to come. There's something powerful that Jesus is doing here. He's saying, look, this thing, there will be a day when this thing won't get you anything. And I don't mean a U.S. dollar, though that's a fears of a lot of people. But there will, this, this commodity is time-bound. It has an expiration date. When the king returns and ushers in the age to come in fullness, this isn't going to be any good. This doesn't do any good there. But there's a way that you can use something temporal and something worldly in a way that resonates into the age to come. Now that's something to think about. That actually sounds quite a bit like the overall story of the Bible. If it is the story of God at work within his world to redeem it, then why shouldn't this be redeemed too? And Jesus, I think, is saying, here's how you redeem it. Be generous with it, sure. Be faithful with it. And part of that faithfulness looks like a kind of use that actually echoes, resonates into the age What in the world is that? What does that mean? I don't know. I don't know for you. And I'm not about to give you 10 tips on how to be better financial managers. That's not my area of expertise. And I'm not about to give you a lecture on how to budget. It's also not my area of expertise. But I do want to challenge you to think about every decision that we make, every purchase, every expense, every revenue, and to say, God, what does it mean to not believe in the system that this represents? What does it mean to not be bound to this as a master, as a system, as a way of living? And what does it mean to really say that Jesus is Lord? He's not first. He's the center. He's not priority one, but then after that, he's Lord. When the first Christians began to call Jesus Lord, they were at the very least borrowing, at the very worst, stealing from phrases and titles that were used for Caesar. And the obvious implication is, if Jesus is Lord, then Caesar is not. Or for our text tonight, if Jesus is Lord, then this is not. Then money is not. Then the economy is not. That we have a different timeline. You remember a few weeks ago I said to you, the difference between the way a Christian lives and the way the world lives is what? Time zone. You belong to the age to come. You're supposed to start living now the way it will be then. And so that means there's a whole world out there that thinks it's nighttime and you know it's morning. And so what they think this represents is not what you think this represents. This to them is a means to get more, to feel better, to escape, 
to climb higher, to get more status, to achieve, to have control, to have power, to be this, to be that, to not disappoint mom and dad, to be able to do this, to be able to do that. And Jesus, to say that Jesus is Lord is to say, this is great. I'm thankful for this. I want to work hard. But my Lord, my provider, my source, my shepherd, my hope is Jesus. So fear has no hold on me. Fear doesn't rule me. Whether you're at a place tonight of saying, I, we, we, we are in the dire straits. I, I know that there's good odds that many of us are. Or whether you're at the place of plenty. I think in both places, we can bow our knee and say, Christ, be Lord. Be Lord. Be the Lord so that fear dissipates. Be the Lord so that you are, we acknowledge you as the source. Be the Lord so that you show us how to redemptively use this in a way that echoes into the age to come. That what we do with temporary worldly stuff can actually alter the course of people, of things to come. Let's pray. Would you just pray with me and just let the Holy Spirit say, you know, say to him, Lord, show me. Show me the things that, that I can do to make you the Lord. Forgive me for the fear. Forgive me for the panic. Forgive me for the striving. Forgive me for... Jesus, thank you for your forgiveness. Thank you for your cleansing. But thank you that you call us to live by a totally different program, a totally different system. Thank you that to confess you as Lord means to make you the shining center, the core. Spirit of God, give us discernment. Give us discernment. Help us to make choices that reflect your generosity and that resonate into the age to come. In Jesus' name, amen.